Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus, increment 145, a continuation of the exegesis of Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8, and we begin with 6-7. So, Father, once again, in a difficult passage in which the history of interpretation offers various views and angles, we pray that you'll grant us clarity so that this word will speak to us in a way that's extraordinarily edifying and incentivizing, and by it may we truly see Jesus with 2020 vision. We ask this in his name, amen. Now we're continuing an exegesis of Hebrews 6, 4 through 8 by going to verse 7. I refer you back to 144 for the exegesis of 6, 4 to 6, and I refer you to the printed page of these studies for the actual Greek words and Greek terms, which will help clarify things for you. I also refer you back to 143, where we hit the first word in Hebrews 6, 4, which is adunatan, impossible. So the situation of this hypothetical or imagined category of persons is then described by an agricultural analogy. So we have in Hebrews 6, 7 to 8, an agricultural analogy. Agricultural analogies are common in the New Testament and should be because of the Middle Eastern frame of reference from the first century A.D., The word, the first word in seven is gay, G-E, and that's the eta E. It means earth, it means land, or in this case, ground, or we'd even say sometimes soil. The explanation or analogous use of the conjunction gar then is the first word in this text. So we would have for the ground after after gay is gar. So we have gay gar, a word we've seen already recently and frequently in this letter or homily. So we have the translation so far for the ground. Now the ground figuratively speaking, is that which drinks the rain that often falls upon it. The word piusa is used for drink. And so we have a personification here, a figure of speech. That which drinks the rain that often falls upon it. You'll have the Greek text also included in the printed page. Then it brings forth, it naturally brings forth, literally the word here is Tiktusa, which means to give birth to vegetation or produce, botanein, where we get the word botany. So we have again, for the ground which drinks the rain that often falls upon it naturally brings forth or gives birth to vegetation or produce that is suitable, euthaton, to those for whose sake it is cultivated and receives a blessing from God. This is actually true. All produce produced by farmers, uh, 
and individuals for consumption of people, for their nourishment, for their survival, is a blessing from God. Therefore, we might say that a famine is a discipline from God. Our nation has seen what is tantamount to a plague, and I don't want to be a prophet, but we could see something along the lines of other catastrophic things, for we are in the first stages of judgment as a nation, historical judgment as a nation. Judgment that can be turned back. And many of you know the answer is found in something like Second Chronicles 7.14. The rain that often falls upon the ground is figurative, of course, for the word of God which sends and which does not return. It is the word which God sends and does not return to him without having accomplished its purpose. Isaiah 55.11 just as Jesus, the eternal word made flesh, was sent by God in divine mission one, and he did not return to God without having accomplished his mission, which is the salvation of the world in John 3.17. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. John 3.17, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Hebrews 6.8 speaks of an undesirable situation of the ground that produces thorns and thistles. This, of course, is reminiscent of the curse on Adam and therefore speaks to what I call Adamic ontology or what we also know as the old man, paleo man, or the former false self. So Hebrews 6.8 again speaks of an undesirable situation of ground that produces thorns and thistles. Reminiscent of the curse on Adam, Genesis 3:17 to 18. But if it produces thorn plants and thistles, it says, and again the Greek words akanthas kai tribolos, it is useless. The ground becomes useless and close to a curse. Adokimas kai kataras angus, which means it's close, useless, or disapproved, we could say, and close to a curse. Its end, the word end there is telos, its end, telos, is to be burned. Ice kausen. So here's the translation of Hebrews 6, 7, and 8. Hebrews 6, 7. For ground that drinks the rain that often falls on it and produces vegetation, useful to those it is cultivated for, receives a blessing from God. We have that word blessing from God in Hebrews 6, 13 to 16 and Hebrews 10, 35. But, verse 8, if it brings forth thorn plants and briars, thorns and thistles, it is useless, about to be cursed, and will be burned at the end. Now these verses speak first to the Adamic ontology to which this category of persons would revert 
if they committed apostasy. All of the production of the Adamic ontology, or the old false self, is destined to be burned off. Second, this passage also evokes reminiscences of the curses in Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26, which result from failures of the people under the first covenant. These have been called the five cycles of discipline. Third, there is a clear connection of this passage with Paul's description of the day, meaning the eschatological day, which declares the true quality of the workmanship of all who allege to serve God. 1 Corinthians 3:12 to 15, a day in which the works that people produce are tried by fire. Connection therefore 1 Corinthians 12, 3:12 to 15 with Hebrews 6:8. Fourth, Jesus' parable of the sower and the four kinds of ground in Luke 8 comes to mind, especially with regard to the seed that falls by the wayside and is picked up by birds of the air. Fifth, we are once again cornered by the word and forced to consider the theological functional specialty of history here, and specifically the A.D. 70 trajectory of the New Testament writings. This homily may well be speaking at this point of a hypothetical category of Christians who neglect such a great salvation that they have in Jesus, who fall away and return to the offering of temple sacrifices in Old Jerusalem, a city which, like the field of thorn plants and briars, was about to be burned. Now, this is important because there's no mention in Josephus' writings. Flavius Josephus is probably the most famous and detailed writer on the time between A.D. 66 and 73, which he calls entitled, it entitles rather, the Jewish Wars. He also wrote another famous book called Antiquities. But this is important because there's no mention in Josephus' writings on the Jewish Wars that any Christians, followers of Jesus, were left in Jerusalem when the Romans finally sacked the city and burned the temple. Consequently, no such category of Christians described in Hebrews 6.6 ever existed, and no such situation ever occurred in history because if there was a tendency for a group to return to Jerusalem in the Old Testament sacrifices, the writings of the New Testament dissuaded them. Such is the practical saving power of the New Testament writings and warnings. The addressees of Hebrews must be considered in many layers, as we've seen in our last increment. First, the homily was intended to speak to a hypothetical group of Christians who were minded to defect from the confession of Jesus as the Son of God and revert to the system of temple sacrifices that had been proven to be inefficacious. Secondly, this is another layer, as it were, the homily was addressed to a group of Christians who were encouraged against such a course of action that could have been performed by a hypothetical group and given the magnificent revelation of Jesus as their great archpriest they were having the incentive not to do so. Third, the homily was endorsed and authorized by Paul if we accept Estheus' 
dispatch note theory, which is made famous by Albert Van Hoy. Again, third, the homily was endorsed and authorized by Paul to be sent to a group or groups within the Messianic community with the intent that they would be instructed in the priestly Christology, which was only implicit in the Pauline corpus. Fourth, the Holy Spirit included the modern 21st century, we would say, communities of Christ as addressees who would appreciate the homily in its many-layered application and especially appreciate and benefit from its themes of the salvific solidarity of Jesus with all of humankind, the universal efficacy of his death and exaltation, and his mediation between God and all of humanity. Let me say that again because this is really the point of our reception of the homily called Hebrews. The Holy Spirit included the modern 21st century communities of Christ as addressees who would appreciate the homily and benefit immensely from its many-layered application and especially benefit by its themes or motifs of the salvific solidarity of Jesus with all of humankind, the universal efficacy of his death and exaltation, and his mediation between God and all of humanity. I've abbreviated those motifs and themes under two acronyms, USSJC, Universal Saving Significance of Jesus Christ, and UICC, the Universal Impact of the Cross of Christ, impact being redemptive, reconciling, rectifying, and restorative. In every case, the addressees are strangers in this world, what I call Zenoi to the Zeitgeist. Zenoi to the Zeitgeist. Zenoi is where we get a word like xenophobia. Zenoi to the Zeitgeist. That's a Greek word coupled with a German word. Zenoi to the Zeitgeist. Strangers to the world system, to the world's way of thinking, the world's way of doing things, the world's way of critiquing people, etc. So in every case, the addressees on all these layers are strangers in this world. Zenoi to the zeitgeist, who have come to the very outskirts of the heavenly city, Oranopolis, the city of the great king, Jesus, whom we already see with the enlightened eyes of the heart, and for whom we wait with, antique, with eager anticipation. Philippians 3.20, 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Titus 2.13, Hebrews 9.28. All who are in the free state of soteria experience the enlightenment that he's speaking of here. They all experience in some meaningful measure and to some discernible degree benefit from the heavenly gift, the companionship of the Holy Spirit, the good word of God, or the beautiful declaration of being justified in Christ, having died with him, created in Christ Jesus, raised with him, etc. They all experience in some measure and to some degree the dynamics of future world, the age about to come in its fullness. In this evil age, Galatians 1.4, all of these will inevitably sin, will all sin. Whoever this epistle is addressed to, this letter is addressed to, 
in this age, we all sin, and some may even consider defection from this state of soteria and reversion to their old life and ways, a serious act of apostasy, going back entirely and rejecting Christ completely. In the unique case that is proposed in Hebrews 6.6, 6, there could even be a category of Christians in the 60s of the first century A.D. who would choose to return to the abrogated, abolished system of temple sacrifices if indeed they were not educated in the priestly Christology that's being brought forth in Hebrews. So you may ask, and I ask myself, what am I doing? At the very least, and this is at the very least, and for some of you who are just brand new Christians or are struggling with your own salvation, at the very least, I'm removing any possibility for this passage to be interpreted as a proof text for those who want to hold and teach a doctrine of hell or a doctrine that makes salvation a matter of human faith in God, human effort, human morality, human obedience, allegiance, rituals, sacrament, or human merit of any other kind other than the human merit of Jesus' faithfulness and obedience by which he became the source of age-abiding salvation. Still again, what am I doing right now at this moment, in this increment, and in the previous ones? I am interpreting this text A, in the light of its historical context, B, in the light of a theological context of who and what God is, and C, in the light of the universality of God's saving act in Christ. And moreover, I am interpreting this text D as something that had specific application to a hypothetical audience, but not to those for whom either the PT or the apostle intended it. In other words, it is not describing the people to whom the PT wrote in this homily or preached this homily to. It is not also to those whom Paul intended for this homily to go to, if indeed he wrote the dispatch note and sent the homily in a letter. Now we'll ask this question. How then is this passage helpful to us. I think you're already feeling the help of it from this and the previous increments. But let's imagine that this warning was originally intended for some group at some time. It would be impossible for those Christians in that particular group to be renewed to repentance or restored to the practical reign of grace from the reign of sin if they apostatize in unbelief because they would have abandoned the only means of recovery and restoration, the once and for all sacrifice of Christ. Again, renewal again out of the reign of sin back to the reign of grace would be impossible while they were in effect crucifying to themselves and to their own harm the Son of God by acting like he needed to suffer again and again in Hebrews 9.25. The writer is dealing in a rhetorical realm, and this is extremely important. The writer is dealing in a rhetorical realm that is beyond 
the debate as to whether an apostate can be restored or not. Unfortunately, that was a long debate in the first centuries of the church age among scholars and theologians. It's an unnecessary debate. Can an apostate be restored or not? Can we, if someone apostatizes and they come back to church, can we let them back into church? Can we baptize them again? Can we restore them or do we reject them forever? Well, if you read First and Second Corinthians, you find out that Paul wanted them to expel a certain person on one occasion and that he wanted them to call him back into fellowship and allow him back into fellowship having been restored to repentance in another. That would be the proof of their love. So if it's the proof of the Corinthian saints' love, how much more does God love? So the debate as to whether an apostate can be restored or not is this an unnecessary debate. It's a moot point. Of course he or she can all things are possible for God. The idea is rather that in the case of those who defect from the confession of Jesus as the Son of God and return to a system of inefficacious sacrifices, or for us, now here is application to us if we want to switch it up a little, or for us a return to Adamic ontology, there is no possibility of a renewal to repentance or recovery of a state unaffected by sin on the basis of inefficacious sacrifices or for us doing good things to assuage the bad things. So, there remains no sacrifice for sins, as Hebrews 10.18 will say explicitly, apart from the once and for all and forever efficacious sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So on the basis of the once and for all effectual sacrifice of Jesus, one can acknowledge one's sin. Even if it's apostasy. And be renewed to repentance by being forgiven for that sin and purified from all wrongdoing, which means washed from all Adamic ontology again. It's another, it's effectively saying putting off the old man and putting on the new man. And when it says put off the old man, put on the new man, it's an iterative aorist tense, meaning that you do it not just once, but many, many occasions in your life you'll do it. And so will I, and I have. So, there is a significance and even a magnificence about 1 John 1.9 if it is seen in the light of the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus as the Lamb of God. And if it is not merely some kind of obsessiveness with sin. It speaks of the erasure of the need for offering sacrifices for sins. And it speaks of the provision of a private, honest confession of the sin leading to restoration. An honest, private confession to God of the sin leading to restoration. I, Psalm 32, Psalm 51 are great examples of that. For it restores us to the experience and joy of the state 
of salvation, the condition of salvation. This goes to Jesus' gracious words to Peter regarding forgiving someone who repents 70 times, seven times. It is God who grants repentance in Acts 11:18. So we can imagine God granting repentance to all kinds of sinners, including the sin for which he forgave Paul and Moses and others. So this goes to Jesus' gracious words to Peter regarding forgiving someone who repents 70 times, seven times. This has two references. One, it means unlimited by a figure of speech, but it also refers back to the ultimate restoration of Israel, which would happen in 70 weeks of seven years, at the close of which is the cross of Christ in Daniel 9, 24 to 27, and refer to Matthew 18, 22. As always, as always, as always, all things are all about Jesus Christ and him crucified. 1 Corinthians 2, 2. The whole debate about whether or not a person could be renewed to repentance again after apostatizing from faith is irrelevant, especially if we take into account that Jesus' faithfulness is the basis for our justification in God's sight. In fact, this debate can actually be a distraction from what the PT is after and what the Holy Spirit is after in his readers and what Paul wants for the readers. The PT is drawing attention to the superior sacrifice of Christ through the back door, as it were, in this passage. It's evident that he anticipated the misinterpretation of his warning here, so he clarifies in Hebrews 6, 9, that one, or let's put it ABC again, A, he's not speaking as if salvation itself were insecure, and B, he does not think that his readers have in any way apostatized, but that instead they are in the free state of soteria, which is, or soteria, which is demonstrable by their past and current service in the dynamic state of love. He says, the love that you've demonstrated for God's name and in serving the saints. So the saying... It's not about you, receives a brand new application here. Hebrews 6, 4 through 8 is not about you. The PT says as much to his intended readers in the very next verse. So we move to 6, 9 of Hebrews and 10. And we'll fan these out at another occasion. Now, even though we're speaking in this manner, meaning... I'm speaking in a rhetorical manner. We're completely persuaded, in your case, of the better things. That is, the things that belong to salvation itself. He couldn't say it any clearer. I'm not talking about the possibility of anybody losing their salvation. That's against the character of what salvation is. However, we can remove ourselves from the state of soteria, put ourselves back under the slavery of a yoke of bondage, which is the reign of sin. 
Then he says in verse 10, nor is God unjust to neglect your work and the love you showed for his name when you serve the saints and you're still serving them. So in other words, you're serving the saints, you're showing love for God's name, you're doing it right now as I'm speaking to you. How can I say to you, you're apostates? In Hebrews 6, 9, the PT assures his audience that Hebrews 6, 4 through 8 is not about them. It does not describe their situation. It is used as part of his thesis to reveal the absolute superiority of the once and for all and forever sacrifice of Jesus Christ for sins. Paul, if indeed he did pen the dispatch note, wants to emphasize, emphasize this for his intended readers as well. And I would be failing in my duty as a 21st century pastor teacher if I didn't remind you, the listeners, that neither is this about you. In Hebrews 6.10, the first century PT remarks that his readers are in the free state of soteria, as evinced or evidenced, we could say, by their operation in the dynamic state of love. I'm hopeful that the same can be said for you and confident that it can be said for many, if not all of you who are listening or reading this message right now. Our exemption from this specific warning, now this is an important thing because I'm going full circle here, our exemption from this specific warning does not mean that we are not in need of conversions. We are in need of conversions, and we are often in need of renewal to the spiritual life when we fall back into the reign of sin and the Adamic ontology. It happens very easily. Putting off the old man or the false self and putting on the new man is a mandate that needs to be repeated many times during the days of our flesh. It is an iterative aorist command. Finally, with specific reference to this section of Hebrews, Hebrews 6, 4 to 8, like all of that section, 5, 11 to 6, 20, is part of a tune-up of the readers and hearers so that they, we also, will be all the more attentive to the priestly Christology that is signaled by the oath-fortified oracle in Psalm 110.4, Septuagint 109.4. You are a priest forever, like Melchizedek. The preacher does not want his hearers and readers to be dull of hearing while being taught this momentous truth, this advanced truth that is embodied in Jesus. Hebrews 6, 4 to 8 must not be isolated from the trajectory of that section, 511 to 620. Therefore, it must be interpreted as fitting the author's purpose and indeed as fitting the Holy Spirit's intention of making them imitators of those who by faith and perseverance obtain the promises, that is, become partakers of the divine nature even in this evil age. Hebrews 6, 4 to 8, therefore has a connection with Galatians 1, 4. Hebrews 6, 4 to 8 was never intended 
by the human or the divine author to scare believers by the prospect of losing their salvation and going to hell. One more clarifying note, and I will close on this one more clarifying note, and it's not a short note, unfortunately. Paul's, or the PT's, word of advice, depending on whether you believe Paul wrote it or a pastor, the pastor-author wrote it, I think Paul did, because there's actually a change of style, a change of literary style, a change of wording, and a move into a kind of a Pauline wording here. One more clarifying note. Paul's, or if you're minded to believe that it's not Paul, the PT's word of advice in Hebrews 13.22 to bear with, aneko, the content of exhortation in Hebrews, may also mean that he intends, even if it does not describe their situation, he still intends that they receive that content for what it's worth. And it's worth something because every scripture, all scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly outfitted for every kind of noble production. So it's worth a lot to them and to us because we are urged to perseverance by a participation in Jesus' perseverance in the Holy Spirit. And we are urged to faithfulness by a participation in Jesus' faith and fidelity to God. For we have a goal. There is the prize. There is the mark of the prize of the upward call, the heavenly calling of God in Christ Jesus. Throughout this evil age and this time of the breaking in of the age to come, there is a magnetic pull on us that draws us back under the reign of sin, or attempts to, and away from the reign of our great king, the kingdom of Christ. There are always consequences to remaining with the king, and there are always consequences to returning to the Adamic ontology in the reign of sin. The reign of sin is spoken of in Romans 6, as you know. The consequences have to do with life and death. Life and inner peace in the higher integration of human living in Christ and intending and acting with the mind of the spirit or carnal death by intending and acting with the mind of the flesh. Though we are not in old Jerusalem on the eve of her destruction. We are nevertheless living in perilous times. 2 Timothy 3, 1 and following. We are living even in an interval of the beginning phases of historical judgment. If we retreat from an onward and upward advance and forsake our heavenly calling, the consequences are ultimately no less calamitous and catastrophic than for old Jerusalem during that which Flavius Josephus called the Jewish Wars between 66 and 73 AD. We must never make the mistake of the destructive seriousness and the egregious nature of sin. We must never make the mistake 
of taking sin lightly or lightening its destructive seriousness and the egregious nature of it. Neither should we ever make light the consequences and especially the consequences of continuing under the reign of sin. We too can be tempted to return to a state and condition that we inhabited previous to and apart from our experience of the free state of soteria. The Adamic ontology and the reign of sin are former loyalties to which we can return. The Adamic ontology, our false or former self, is itself an enslavement demanding a certain loyalty, a certain submission. The reign of sin is just that. It's a reign. The only alternative is the reign of Jesus, our great king. Perhaps the most compact and potent exhortation to those who have once been enlightened, both in the first and the 21st century, is found in Romans 13, verses 11 to 14, which I will include here along with a brief bracketed commentary. My translation from when we were dealing with Romans, along with bracketed commentary, which will all blend together. And I'm not going to give this, the verse references. I'm just reading now from 13.11 of Romans to 13.14. You'll see the verse divisions in the printed page. And this, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to rise up from sleep. For now, our eschatological salvation, which Jesus will bring when he comes a second time, is closer than when we first believed. Now the night is almost over. The day is near. So put off the works of darkness, just like you put off your night clothes, and put on the armor of light. Awake, not just to live, but in readiness to do battle, putting on the armor of God. Let us walk in a way that is appropriate for daytime, not sleepwalking, not inattentive. This is conducting our lives in a manner that is appropriate to the age that has dawned with Christ's resurrection and is about to come to its noonday brilliance. It is to walk according to the rule that is called faith working by love in Galatians 5.6. It is the rule of the Israel of God. That's my comment. Not with excessive partying and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and debauchery, not in quarrels or in party strife, factionalism rooted in group bias, rooted in turn in the desire to have preeminence over others, to be lord over others. On the contrary, that is, instead of desiring to be lord over others, put on or submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh, the Adamic ontology, that is, for its desires, the power of sin under the reign of death. 
Father, grant us the grace to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and to make no provision or reservations for the flesh. We ask it in his name. Amen.